This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode, we absolutely geeked out because we got to speak to arguably the number one triathlon coach in the world at the moment, and that is Arild Varden from Norway. He is the head coach and sports director of the Norwegian Triathlon Federation and the Norwegian triathletes have taken the triathlon world by storm uh, over the last two, three, four years, uh, even longer. And he's been at the head of uh, the triathlon group in Norway uh, and the athletes for 10 plus years now. And he's really developed them into just the powerhouse of the sport. So we get to speak to him today and it was an unbelievable chat. And uh, if you weren't aware at the Olympics uh, in Tokyo in 2021, the Norwegian athlete Christian Blumenfeldt won gold. He's been coached by Arild for 11 years. Uh, yeah, he took the gold medal and uh, their fellow Norwegian athletes, Gustav Eden and Kasper Stornes, uh, came 8th and 11th respectively, as well as Lottie Miller, who finished uh, 24th as well in the game. So to have four athletes in the top 24, three in the top 11, just shows the strength of them. Uh, plus, as we speak about in the actual episode, they were pretty disappointed with their 8th and 11th uh, positions. They couldn't have been disappointed with the gold medal. So... Uh, yeah, we we got as much information as we possibly could out of a reel today, didn't we, Dad? And he was extremely generous with his time, and more importantly, uh, and more helpful for us, he was extremely generous with his answers. He could have held back, but he gave us an insight into the top coaching program in the world, whereas a lot of coaches would keep their cards close to their chest. Yeah, we're extremely grateful for him to give us uh, an hour of his time, and uh, it's one of the, the most impressive um, interviews we've done because he really opens up as to how a tiny country like Norway can unbelievably be the, the, the world leader in triathlon. Um, and, you know, the, the story is, is a, it could be a movie. It's fantastic. It's, it's a guy with a passion and wanting to see people improve. You know, he, he admits himself he was just an everyday triathlete and uh, aspired to, to higher successes, but um, he saw that his gift was in coaching and, and he took, you know, a group of 14 to 16-year-olds um, who weren't very talented, um, and he's turned one of them into an Olympic champion um, after you know ten year journey, which you know during the process would have been you know extremely long and arduous. But uh, looking back now, after you've won the Olympic Games gold medal, it, it seems obviously the journey was worth it. And and not only just to have one athlete, but to have you know two or three other athletes who are winning world ch- championships and in winning the best triathlons that, that are the being. Uh, available to to the athletes in the last two years and you know i think in bermuda they got first second and third with incredible result and and this is an example of uh, attention to detail uh trusting the process uh you know having the right program um having the right intensity to rest being scientific taking lactate threshold uh you know detailed in training um and really you know being the leader in in all aspects of uh, of, of of training and racing and competing and and preparation um, um, you know that they weren't that successful at Rio in 2016 they went away and did some more homework and look what happened you know four or actually five years later due to COVID but uh, but uh, it's just a great story and uh, he's, he's got an insight into which will you know you can associate as an everyday age grouper you can understand that you know there are a lot of similarities between what you can do as a professional and what you can do as a, an age grouper. 
you know, mentally you are in charge of a lot of the decisions you make as an age group are just the same as a professional is. And you can decide to train as hard or as easy as you like. Um, um, so the choices are still there and there's no ceiling on your, you know, how far you can go with yourself. Um, it's your ability and, and willingness to actually do the program and, and put the effort in. So I took a lot out of that and, um, and he also confirmed a lot of the theories that, uh, that we like to, you know, continue to evolve um, in our coaching business because if you don't uh, improve your coaching, you, you stand still and you get left behind. So, you know, we need to learn from others. And, and I think, it, you know, from my own personal coaching, I learn so much from other people and try to implement the good things uh, into our program so our athletes get the best benefit from it. And, and he's another example of someone who's willing to share um, what's been successful for him and um, and I think it's uh, some really good listening information. Absolutely. So without further ado, we'll let you get stuck into this episode and soak up all the best information uh, that we got to chat to Arul about. So here is Arul Tavodden. So Arul, we are so grateful to have you join us. A very big warm welcome to the Traveller Coaching Podcast. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to, to this podcast and the conversation we will have. Our very first question we like to ask our guest is, what does the sport of triathlon mean to you? Wow. <laughs> uh, it has been a really big part of my life uh, since I did my first triathlon when I was 16 in 1987. So I have uh, quite a long uh, background as an athlete and now as a coach. And um, it's, it's the lifestyle and um, it's a really important part of my life, of course. I mean, on that note, you were um, you had a long history as an athlete, but you've really developed a huge passion for coaching, and uh, you've now been at the top of the game with Norway and Team Norway uh, for a long time now. Uh, we wanted to start by touching on the relationship you have with your athletes because it's quite unique in that you've been with these top athletes, Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, and all the rest for potentially ten plus years. So, firstly. Uh, how has the relationship developed with these athletes um, in terms of them trusting you, trusting your philosophies and trusting the process between you as a coach and them as an athlete? Wow. Um, it has been a really long journey, of course. Um, I have to admit that when I started coaching Christian, I had a coaching background, but that was more or less uh, coaching um, age group or and many of them doing Ironman and longer distance stuff. So it, it was actually a process for me to say yes to that role because I knew that coaching young athletes, coaching athletes going to be fast or to be good at sprint distance, that was a little bit ball, different ball game than coaching age group or doing an Ironman. So, but I jumped into it and um, uh, in many ways it's been a really good learning experience. And in the beginning, you have your philosophy of how it works, but uh, I have to say that Maybe the first two or three years, it was every after after each season, we were thinking, oh, okay, are we pushing it too hard, too much, too early? Will it stop, develop the next year, and so on? But then you, after a few while, uh, few years, you understood that, okay, we have a kind of a sustainable uh, system of working and develop that, that athlete. So you trust the process, you trust the, the coaching philosophy you have, and 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 yeah, and then you see the result now. And also, I need to say that 
Of course, when you begin coaching, you are in many ways a kind of an instructor. You tell the athletes what to do. They are, uh, Christian was 16 years old, but, uh, but as long as they develop, they're getting better, they also show a huge interest in, in, in coaching or the training fields for themselves. And, and uh, after a while, they are more kind of a sparring partner and we have a dialogue and discussion about how the training should be. Uh, and now we are moving even more like they are a little bit, they are much more independent than they were the first year. So it's always then kind of an evolution of the process. But um, the coaching philosophy uh, is, is more or less the same, but of course it's developed through the years. So we know you're extremely passionate about what you do and it comes through in a lot of uh the stuff I've I've been uh, listening to you uh, on your journey, and um, do you do you find that you're um, reinventing yourself as you learn as a coach, and and seeing what works, and and understanding that maybe that's too much or that's not enough? How do you see that? Is it is it something that you're trying to progressively build an understanding of how the athlete responds to to your coaching methods, and has that changed from? 2010 to 2015 to 2021 has have you seen a change in your philosophy uh, yes okay um it's uh, in many ways the way we are working the main principle that has been the same but uh, it's already been a developing through the years and um as i said that you learn the athletes more and better and um the athletes get to know you they get to know more about the training and and, and this is always a kind of an evolution and improvement and progression all the time. And, uh, and especially after the Rio Olympics, we stepped it up quite a lot with um, paying much more attention to intensity control. And it's not so much about the, uh, the volume. It's more about how you balance the training, the, the intensity in the training. And um, we have been much more focused on that. And that has been also been evolved further when we are going into the yeah, getting closer to the Tokyo games because then you need to take a look at what do you need to do to try to win an Olympic gold in Tokyo and and that in many ways they uh, change a little bit of the aspect of the training and uh, how you work with athletes and uh, uh, you need them um, uh, it's, it's not about just me doing the job because we have other uh, coaches there too and uh, sports scientists who is been a really um, kind of a main architecture for some of the work we have done the last uh, two, three years, especially. The, the philosophy that you talk about, can you, can you explain to our listeners what is your general philosophy um, as a coach of a triathlon country, uh, as, as elite individuals? What, what is your basic philosophy? And if you could summarize that for the listeners, it would be fantastic. Oh, it's of course not so easy to say it uh, shortly, but. Um, in many ways, we, we believe in a volume-based model. Um, we strongly believe that uh, triathlon is an aerobic endurance sport. Uh, and that is the main principle we are working at. So, so the anaerobic impact and uh, low volume, high intensity stuff is not the way we're working. It's um, also very polarized uh, that we have a lot of low really low intensity and a lot of the work and uh, the intensity part is very structured based on the intensity we think we need to do but but that is also has been um, 
uh, improvement uh, development through the years because if you if you would say in general we we probably do much more uh, what you call anaerobic threshold training than many other countries because we have seen that doing that in the system and also have the volume at high intensity you, we see a big improvement in VO2 max so when we see our athletes on a model like that uh, have a VO2 max at between 85 to 90 uh, milliliter, uh, then we, we actually see that that is the model who also developed the VO2 max. So, so this, that is the main principle. But, but of course, when you're going into the details, it's much more, what to say, um, nuanced and, yep. than so, that is. Of course, it's, that's the general answer in many ways, yeah. So can you explain what you mean by you change the intensity control, especially after Rio heading towards Tokyo? What did you change specifically? Uh, one of the things, we, um, okay, um, in general, when you're doing intensity control, when we start with young athletes, it's quite normal to use heart rate monitors and then you use the power meters. And, but then we had, we had always using lactate monitoring and taking lactate testing. So what we actually did that we were de developed a new testing regime. It was our sports scientists who made a totally new protocol. And with that, we could more accurate determine the LT1, the aerobic threshold, and also the LT2, the anaerobic threshold to a much more detail, uh, in more accurate than we have done before. Uh, and one of the thing is, instead of, let's say you're doing an interval on the bike, and instead of that, okay, you need to do three, 50 to 360 rats or whatever it is, they can maybe start out with that. And then we take a lecture test and say, okay, this is a little bit too high or too low. And then we adjust it according to the, how they are at that specific day. So, so the intensity control and how they, we do it is much more uh, individually based on the, how the athletes are feeling exactly that day. So, so that is one of the big changes. And in many ways, it's not as a, a really big improvement, but it's a little bit more into the details in how you, um, you work with the, the athletes and they are maybe uh, doing performing every session a little bit more accurate that, than did before. And when you're having volume 30 to 35 hours a week on, the, on, on a weekly basis, that is something that make a difference in the end, we believe. That's absolutely brilliant. And uh, it goes straight into the topic that we really wanted to dive into, and that is specific sessions. And so you've spoken about doing more specific or accurate training at that LT2 point. Uh, Christian yeah. has, you know, has been really getting into YouTube uh, the last few years, and he posts a lot of the sessions on YouTube, which is really kind of him. We get to see uh, his sessions live and what he does, and he, he puts up the data, and it's great to look at. And a lot of the uh, efforts might be described at, uh, you know, three by 10 minutes on the bike at LT2. So we were wondering uh, how much of these high intensity sessions are at LT2 or maybe just under or just above, or how many are way higher, you know, where they're at 110% of LT2. Yeah, um, of course, that is a little bit based on the, on the part of the year they are at, and also, of course, that they are training for. So when Christian now is uh, training for his Ironman, it's not so much about LT2. but um, I would say that um, 
in general, in most of the year, in most of our training, um, our interval session is around altitude. And we try to develop the, the time frame we are working at the altitude intensity. So to be quite general, I would say that on the bike, we are maybe 60 to 75 minutes at altitude, which means if you want to do it at the really at altitude, what we define as altitude, you, you cannot work at a four millimol uh, in like that because then you are going too high. Yeah. On the run, we are more or less 12, 14, 15K. That is something we see that works quite well as long as you stay at the right intensity. Uh, if we say what we do above altitude, I would say that uh, that's very little. It's, of course, when you are preparing for the races, uh, we do lit. Uh, when we are in training block, where we see that we need to work on develop the VO2 max of some of the athletes, then we go higher. But but I would, in general, I would say nine out of ten interval sessions on the bike and run is at altitude. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because when most people think of polarized, you know, they think of the hard sessions much higher intensity and the easy sessions easy. And so you'd assume that the hard sessions are, you know, much higher intensity and not at LT2. Yet you're saying you're spending all the time at LT2. It doesn't seem so polarized. No, no, uh, it's not so polarized in the way they normally describe polarized training. But um, when you see uh, how we're different between the easy session, because when we are at easy session, we are below 1.0 in lactate. And at altitude, we are maybe around 2.5 and higher. So in that way, we are polarized in that way that we are not doing anything between. Uh, but of course, it's normal to say that if you're polarized, you're doing very high intensity when you are doing intensity work. But for us, it's mostly control intensity work at altitude. But as I say, that it, it is some changes, and it's one of the other things that has been changing through the years that we are instead of building up the training year around the normal plan, you, you have your base work and then you go into specific works and high-end intensive work. We are doing tests in the lab maybe every six or eight weeks. And then if we see an athlete, even if it's off-season, need to improve their VO2 max, then we will change his training to work on develop the VO2 max at that time. And then we come to a new test uh, six, eight weeks later, and then we see that, okay, no, the VO2 max is a high level, but um, the difference between LT1 and LT2 is not where we want it to, to be. So then we need to adapt and change the training based on that again. That is also one of the big differences uh, that we do compared to five years ago. It's a huge advantage, isn't it, uh, when you can actually be testing your lactate uh, levels um, in, in the lab and in the training session. Um, and it and it's really it's going the extra mile, isn't it? Was that something that changed prior to Rio and then post Rio when you realize that maybe you need a little bit more scientific evidence about where your training level should be and to prevent the athlete from pushing too hard because you know the motivated athlete and you have many of them in your squad you know if if you ask them to jump you know six meters they'll do six meters if you ask them to jump three meters they'll do that so so it is hard to hold the motivated athlete back and and the lactate is a really good objective way where there's no yeah. 
There's no subjectiveness that, you know, this is your lactate, don't go above this. Do you think that was a big a big shift from what you were doing prior to Rio to post-Rio going into yeah. Tokyo? Yeah, it's a big difference. Um, and as you see that, even before Rio, we were taking a lot of lactate testing, but that was mostly a little bit on key session and a little bit in the lab. But it, it was always a little bit that, okay, if you're feeling really good that day, you can push a little bit harder. But now that is changed because they know the lactate at altitude. And that one of the things is interesting. Let's see, over three boys, they, they were all performing quite well at the Olympics. Um, and of course, they're helping the team in, in the training when they yeah. train together. Yeah. But when they're doing intervals, Yes, they can be there and push each other, each other, but it's more like they try to see, I need to do this key session at my intensity, at my threshold. And, and that sometimes you, you need to let your ego go away. That means that Christian in many sessions have been passed by both Casper and Gustav because at that day, maybe Christian is a little bit tired, but you know that if he at his like that altitude level, he still have a good training session. But if you go with yours, it will not be a good session for him. And, and, and so they actually see that the session is a success when I've been achieved it at the elected values that need to do, not yep. by yep. the pace that do or the power that do. And, and that is quite a big, big difference and very difficult for many athletes to understand and change. And, uh, for their mental side that, you know, I want to keep up with Casper. I, I don't want to be left behind. I, you know, that would be hard for an athlete who's motivated. Why, yeah. why, am I, why am I lactating so high and I need to, you know, hold back? That, that's not an easy thing for an athlete. Especially actually. for the world champion, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it's really tough. And um, that's one of the biggest learning experiences you have. And, uh, of course, um, you need to work um, closely with the athletes. The athletes need to understand how this works and why that is correct and the right things to do for them. Um, and uh, it, it, it was um, an old man who said many years ago, a former professional cyclist, you, you need to find your training partners with care. And it's not that everyone said that uh, you need to have some good, better athletes to push yourself, but they said, if you choose a training group, be sure that you are the strongest one. So are you taking uh, lactate in every single session? Uh, we, I've seen the videos where they're taking lactate, pricking the ear or behind the ear. Or, um, you've got yeah. the sports scientist there. Is that happening every hard session? Uh, yes, I would say that every hard session. And also in um, quite many of the LT1 uh, sessions because... At that point, it's quite easy to maybe go up to 1.3, 1.4 in like that. But that's also a point where we want to be quite accurate. But how is that happening if they're going for a long run in the hills or I know they run around the mountains in Norway? Uh, is there someone following them and then and, and taking their lactate? What? Uh, we do it in both ways. When they are alone, uh, they're maybe not doing too much testing, but they have their own lactate um, uh, meter with them. Then I also always use the fingertip because that's the easiest part. Um, when we are on training camp, we fall on them. Um, yeah. Running intervals, running intervals is quite okay. On the bike, it could be a little bit more challenging because then we are driving the car and try to 
calculate when I finish with a the 10 minutes intervals or whatever. Yeah. So, um, especially when we are in the mountains in Sierra Nevada, I think the, the, the local police are not so happy about this because, because we are stopping in the middle of the, the road uh, a lot of the time just to take the lactate uh, values. Well, that was my next question. Sorry, that last one on, yeah. on this uh, lactate testing is, uh, it's obviously a game changer, you're saying. How accessible do you think it is for the age grouper to get their own lactate test and, and do it themselves in sessions? Oh, it's always a fine balance because um, doing a lot of testing is costs quite a lot of money. So you need to see how much you want to invest in it. But um, but I see for myself that it's um, really good to do because then I, of course, you know, you let's say you altitude power values or the pace you should have on the track, running intervals. But I always try to have one or two test just to check if I'm within the right levels. And if I'm not, I need to adjust the pace up and down uh, or maybe adjust the training session. But, but of course, I don't use it in the same ways that I do with my elite athletes. Uh, so it's um, more on to a kind of an age group level. But, the, but if you are professional in what you do, a lot of age group are investing a lot of money in expensive equipment and a new bike i would say that you can have if you have all the right equipment that everything is correct i think one of the biggest game changer is to use lactate and know how to use it mm. that's uh, probably the main thing we don't know how to use it if it doesn't help you that's right and one of the things that you could become very good at is is understanding what your lt1 and your lt2 equivalent power number is so or your running pace and of course yeah. that can change with with heat with cold with yeah. the way you're feeling with the fatigue levels you're carrying um so you can become you know with minimal testing i suppose get a comparison of what your running pace is should be around these um you know minutes per kilometer or the power data you know that you know is around 2.6 it could be 250 watts and above and yeah. you get quite good at that. And, and are the athletes you're coaching understanding that, you know, LT1 uh, lactate number is similar to this pace? And, yeah. and th that obviously changes as you get fitter. Yes, of course. Um, and that is some of the thing you take in when you're working with age group that uh, if you are working at, let's say you are back in Norway, the weather is quite constant, that you are training at the same places, then you you can adapt the the lactate values to power numbers and pace and, and that will be really good and accurate but the uh, but when you develop in your training that probably will change and then you need mm. to take some new test again uh, mm. but what we actually see is the biggest changes is that for our elite that is let's say that you're going to altitude and then you cannot use the pace in the mm. same way mm. that mm. you do at sea level and the last years, when you are training in the heat to try to prepare for for, for the races in the heat, like the Tokyo race, uh, the, the, the the pace and the, the power values the first day at, at the heat camp is very different from what it is at the at the sea level. And for us, for instance, this year in um, before the Tokyo, when we are at the higher altitude, and then you go directly to. Uh, um, Heat camp, uh, 
of course, the values is different and only content parameters you use is selected. The power and the pace is changing. Yes, and and that is really making it complex, isn't it? And you really have to understand um, where you are in your training, uh, what environment you're in, and have almost a, a few sets of numbers. You know, this is my sea level training with normal temperature. This is my altitude training. This is my heat training. And and knowing that you will have to adapt to dif- different um, stimulus to to keep yourself from overtraining. Yeah. No, no, no. It's um, that is the, the big science, and it's always something you can learn more of. And uh, we we are getting more and more experience from year to year. And w- one thing we see that is very individually how, for instance, how they uh, react to an altitude camp. How many days they need to be uh, acclimatized. Um, we see a big difference if an athlete. Let's say Christian, he's been maybe 80 to 100 days a year at altitude since 2014. Mm. So he's adapting. So yeah. yeah. So when he comes to an altitude camp now, he's time to be adapted and kind of the, the power of values and likelihood levels is quite similar to what you do at sea level. It's quite wow. just a few days. Wow. But some of the other athletes, it, it could take, uh, maybe it's a big difference, the whole camp. So I really, I've got a few more questions on on uh, everything about lactate testing because it is so fascinating for us. And this is just gold information. To be honest, uh, we just nerd out about this information so much. It's what we love talking about. Uh, a quick question. The Ingebrigtsen family, the athletics family, um, yeah. They are famous for lactate testing as well. Is it just a coincidence that uh, you're all Norwegian um, or is there some sort of crossover there in the Norwegian sports program? Because they're one of the few other coaching groups that do it as much as you. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I would say that it's not a coincidence because, okay, uh, we are not working closely together, um, but we are a little bit a part of, I would not say the same prog- program, but um, the coach to the Ingebrigtsen brothers they are uh, their father. Uh, he has one mentor he's discussing training with. That is an an old professor from Norway called Erjan Matsen. And he was also my first mentor when I started working to do, go more scientific into the training when we were starting doing altitude training. So if you see the main things about training, what they do compared to what we do, it's... Uh, quite use of lactate meters is quite high use of um, uh, altitude training. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's some of the same principles in training. And um, even if they're racing for three and a half minutes, they're working in a way that they're working a lot with develop the aerobic uh, pathway and less on the VO2 max part. Uh, so that means that they will also be good in running 5K, 10K, and so on. So they have a different approach to the 1500 meters than some of the other track and field athletes who are really fast and good at 800 and maybe are able to run a fast 1500 meter when they are in the shape of their life. So they have a the same, the same approach. Even the racing time is three and a half minutes. And that is very interesting. You can see that in Jakob Ingebrigtsen, uh, even in the Olympics, every single race, he refused to sprint out at the start. He sits at the back and keeps his lactate down and he runs an even. 
pace the whole way. Um, yeah. In one of Christian's videos, he uh, he's doing uh, 1K reps. Um, it's a brick session and he's doing uh, some yeah. efforts on a bike and then 1K reps after. And he's running 250 pace for most of them. And then he does one at 238 pace. Uh, yeah. That's not his LT2 though, is it 250? Because that's that's just faster than his 10K PB. Um, yeah, so, no, um, at that kind of session, he's running um, higher at the higher pace than his altitude. But his uh, lactate level at the pace like that is maybe around four. So it's not like he's skyrocket high. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that if he is running 12 times 1000 at the altitude uh, intensity, he will maybe do it three or five per K. Okay, so that was my next question is because that session was about uh, six kilometers of running, a bit higher intensity. And then the session you described before, or the way you described it before, was the bike is 60 minutes to 75 minutes at LT2 or potentially 14 to 15 kilometers. So at what point are they doing that kind of training where it's a 60 minute bike at LT2 or 14 Ks of running at LT2? Is that base training or is that? Yeah, uh, that's base training. But you need to understand that we do base training all year round. So we did that kind of session even in altitude in July, mm-hmm. uh, and we do it a lot of it now. And so that is also one of the things that let's say you want to win an Olympic gold medal, <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the the time if you do the training right, have a, the volume, and you're working all the parameters. This specific specific training you need. To be fast enough to develop the, the speed and the, the power and able on the bike to work at different power, you know, all the sprint and everything. We see that if you're using four to five weeks of specific training on that, you are ready to race hmm. the highest level. And, and in your opinion, would that be because you're continuing to keep your aerobic base going all year? And so you, yeah. can, you can jump for four to six weeks or five to seven weeks of specific training because you've kept that base endurance, which is very much aligned with our philosophy, which is really great to hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all year round. And I would say that uh, even some of the, 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 the session we did uh, at heat camp in uh, outside Tokyo, then we are just two weeks um, before the Olympics. When we do the interval session, some of the first session we do that, we start with the altitude just to maintain that fitness. And then you're going closer to more race pace and race specific. And maybe then when we have the last session before going into the, the games, then you are just working on the race pace. But maybe up till the week before, you still do a little bit altitude, not to develop the altitude, but to maintain it. And sorry to clarify, you really only switch to that high intensity last five to six weeks out from Tokyo. Is that what you said? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but then we, of course, we have an earlier period uh, for, uh, before the races. Mm. We started with the Yokohama race. So let's say that in the Olympic cyclists, we have uh, one period in uh, late April, early May, when we did the same. Mm. And then we went into a racing block of four weeks of uh, racing. Then you go on altitude camp again and working on the basic stuff. And at the end of that, you're switching to higher intensity and more race-specific things for four, five weeks before the games. So really, 
you had almost a, a practice run prior to the Tokyo Olympics by doing that in April, a specific yeah. build, go to do, and I know, I think you, you guys did four races maybe in that block. And then, yeah. and then that's kind of simulating the high intensity preparation that you were going to do for Tokyo. And yeah. you're getting a practice run at that. And then you go back and train at, at altitude, come back out of there and go to Tokyo and revisit exactly the same formula. And it's, is that an accurate version of what you were trying to, to uh, do with your athlete? Yes, uh, you summarized it quite well. That's the way we do it. And, um, and, and that will, of course, be a little bit different build from year to year, uh, based on the season. And um, one of the little changes that um, what before we, we went to the, uh, the May racing with the, the Yokohama race, we were at altitude at Sierra Nevada. In Sierra Nevada, that's higher altitude, that is 2,300. So there we can do very little of high intensity stuff so there so this first part of the season we do more altitude things and a little bit less higher race specific things because of the altitude you are yep but in the summer camp we are in the pont that's 1800 meters and we do some of the intervals at 16 1700 meters that there's a little bit different there we can go at a little bit higher intensity so we do a little bit more race-specific in that pairing leading into the Olympics. And that I would say that in general, that's what we normally do from year to year. If we were trying to uncover the secret of the Norwegian success, and, and that's it's a real credit to you because you have developed this program yourself and, and it's taken you a long time, you know, over 10 years to get these athletes to peak performance. And when you first started with these athletes, they were... I think I heard you say they were average athletes and yeah. you have developed them into, you know, Christian has won the Olympic gold medal at Tokyo. That's, that, that is the pinnacle of, of triathlon um, to win the gold medal at the Olympics. And there are other world championship titles that are probably as important, but the Olympics is a, a real standout because it's only every four years. So do you pinch yourself looking back now over the journey um, and, you know, do you have a sense of pride? about how you've developed your coaching and you've brought these athletes who were, in your own words, they weren't you know, outstanding athletes to begin with, but you've developed them over a journey to become the best in the world. Is that something you're really proud of? Yes, I have to say that I'm proud of the process and what we started, but uh, it's really important to understand that um, the last, specifically the last year, we have a lot of experts who is being uh, taking the program further because we, uh, well, I think one of the key elements uh, to be a coach is that you always need to understand that you need to learn more and you need to develop as a coach. And what I started with has never, would never be enough to win an Olympic gold medal. So I need to develop and I also come to a point that certain things that uh, we have other coaches or sports scientists who have better and higher knowledge so, so 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 they are much more important now than when we started alone but the main thing is in norway is a little country you have few athletes you need to work with the athletes you have so the thing that you are trusting the athletes you trust in the process you are patient with them and can working on long-term goals and 
just be able to do that, that is something you are proud of, because that is as kind of a different approach to other countries. Uh, let's say your country, you have a lot of young athletes, you have a lot of races, you have a lot of super sprint races and past formula races. And how you pick your athletes is based on how they perform at that kind of races. If you have put the Norwegian national team in Australia, I, I would say that 10 out of 12 will never, ever uh, get a, an Australian national team because they don't have that skills when they were young. That is something they've developed mm. uh, later on. Uh, it certainly needs a bit of patience, doesn't it, uh, to, to put into an athlete. Um, uh, you know, identifying talent early is 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 a is a benefit, of course. But yeah. um, but you've proven that um, you know, with the right guidance um, and patience, you can develop athletes. Um, but you need you need time, don't you? You need time to to develop yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need time, and I have said many times, and we mean that the the biggest talent you need in triathlon is the talent to to train and do the work. Uh, and if you have that and you are patient and you are willing to take your time, you will develop and come to a high, high level. Uh, as I said, uh, okay, Christian was quite early at a quite high level. But for instance, both Gustav and Casper, um, uh, they were not very good in the beginning. They were really bad swimmers. So they were, they were not even in the main group. If they do a junior, Continental Cup in Europe. They were almost dead last out of the water. And they were fighting for 50 or 60 positions, and that is not so impressive. And um, then was, and Kasper, he tried to, um, to qualify for the Youth Olympics. It was way off. Uh, but I, I see that today, if you see the, the, uh, the results list from the Youth Olympics compared to, to who's the best athletes today, it's totally changed. Because mm -hmm. what you do when you are 16 or 17, uh, it, it could be very different uh, from when you are yeah, 20, 22. And we see our athletes have a, maybe the biggest improvement they have it is when they are 18 to 20, 21. They are a little bit late, later developed than some other countries. So that means that in, when they are 16, 17, 18, they will probably not get into a national program many places in the world. But when they are twenty, they are quite good. It's uh, it's it's interesting, and I've heard you say many times. And we have this uh, asked of us, you know, uh, coach, what, what do you think I can achieve? Can I can I, if we talk about running pace, do you think I can run under three hours for the marathon? Do you think I can push three hundred watts as a as a bike rider? And I love your answer to that to those questions. Um, can you just tell our listeners what you think about those questions and, and how you would respond to, to an athlete who came to you and said, what do you think I'm capable of? I think one of the things about our success that we, we strongly believe that you can achieve everything you want if you're doing on the right guidance. In general, I would say that as a coach, you, you need to believe the athletes need to say high targets and you as an athlete uh, coach, you need to see that, okay, this is possible, but it's everything if you say that as an age group, my main goal is to run under three hours. In a marathon in Ironman, you need to break it down. Okay, what is the consequence? What do you need to do? But first of all, I think, oh, yes, you can do it. I think you can do it. But what do you need to do to come to that point? But, but, because it, it, it's no 
shortcuts on that because then you show that you have big endurance and you need to run at a decent pace uh, at, the, at the end of a long race. So of course, you need to do the work. And, and I see that I've been working uh, with some age groupers too. And it's, it's a lot of that age group who have a really high ambition about themselves, but they really don't understand what they actually need to do. And when you as a coach actually tell them to, they don't truly understand it or believe it. They always someone who believes on shortcuts. The important part is that you tell them that you believe they can, but you really have to follow it up with, but you need to do this. <laughs> this is what yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that is the main thing. Um, I think that it's no big limit for most people what they can achieve. Of, of course, for me at my age, when I was 30, 35, my goal was to run sub three hours in a marathon in an Ironman. But when I'm 50, if I should do an Ironman again, I know that that is um, a little bit too high ambitious. So maybe <laughs> yeah. I should go for 330. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that I know I can do. Let's let's talk about Tokyo Olympics. Uh, firstly, a big congratulations on the gold medal. Um, we know how talented Christian is. Uh, we've spoken about your journey. You started working with him when he was 16. Um, you had other athletes there. I do want to start with Christian and just say, how did that feel for you as a coach, watching him after this whole journey win that gold medal? Oh, um, it was um, uh, it's difficult to describe it. Of course, you were really, really happy, really happy for him. Uh, and it was a big relief too, uh, because um, we have been quite open on, on our ambitions. And uh, you know that it's a lot of things that can go wrong on, on, on the day. So most of all, I was really happy. And then it's a big relief. Yes, we did it. Because he could probably have a really, really good race and be number two or three because it mm. was a tough race. But then we had the feeling that, oh, we didn't succeed. So, so, so that is um, the first impression. But when the time goes, now I'm more like, why didn't we were able to help Gustav and Casper and do the right things for them to be even higher placed than they did? So, um, so now it's uh, I put much more attention to to them and what should we maybe have done different or in other ways because they were really disappointed after the race. Even yeah, it was good to be one eight and eleven. Uh, yeah, eight and eleven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a it's a terrific answer. And uh, rather than just basking in the glory of one victory, as a true coach, you're always concerned about every athlete and and you're asking yourself and and this is what we really push in our athletes is the post-race analysis and understanding why Christian went so well and why the others were a little bit disappointed. Is there something post-race that you could look back on the training, the preparation on the race day itself that you could do differently? Um, is that something you spend a lot of time since post Tokyo, and 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 how have you gone about that? Yes, uh, of course, um, we have some um, discussion about that. Um, it's always about the, the uh, it's at that level. It's on small details. Uh, it's we have been discussing that uh, maybe some of 
training leading up the race should be a little bit more individualized. Um, we think that the, the way they executed the race during the race was not in all, all, all parts perfect. They wasted a little bit too much energy at part of the races where that shouldn't. In which part? But, but, uh, I, I think that, um, for, for instance, I, I need to be a little bit different. Uh, uh, what's this? I, I can say it, of course, but um, we saw that Casper, uh, especially, he was r- really nervous about the race. So he was very anxious that he needed to be at the front all the time. That is, of course, <laughs> good. <laughs> but but um, he was not so calm, in, especially on the bike, as Christian was. Christian you can see what, the way he raced that he felt under total control. And uh, Casper was wasting a little bit too, uh, too much energy. So when he started to run, he was still fresh. He was still feeling really, really good. And he was following the elite athletes uh, in the beginning. But that, at the end, the fatigue uh, uh, caught, yeah, caught up to him. So, yeah. And what and, about uh, Gustav? Where, where do you think he could have improved? Um, his, if his swim was has been a little bit faster, that would be helped a little bit on the bike. But his uh, main thing that was not perfect was the first 5K on the run. He was losing quite a lot of position and was not feeling too good. The last 5K was probably, I, I can't remember the time split now, but that was one of the fastest, the last 5K the, mm. in the whole race. What would you change for them next time? Because they're quite specific things to that race so it doesn't seem like it's a common mistake for either of them no it's not a common mistake but uh, one of the big learning experience that um when we have three athletes we know they are different we know they are um, uh, respond a little bit different to different kinds of training uh, is that we need to be paying even more attention to the individualization of the training program so that is some of the improvement we need to um, and we're still looking at deeper into now because um, they all want to be the best in, in the world. So we, we, of course, need to try to do whatever we can to, to help all the athletes to, to come to a high level. But it is also that they are different in age, age and it's very difficult for Casper to understand that one of the reasons that he's slower than Christian, that he's three years younger and he has three years of less training than Christian. Mm. Uh, at the, at the, to win an Olympic medal, that is something that w- will be a, could be a difference. Yeah, and that could be something that he aspires to and learns from this experience and, and is the better athlete because of it and won't be so aggressive on the bike and, and race differently. But, but certainly, if you look at the way all of the athletes com- competed, your philosophy has been about the team, the Norwegian team, training together as a group, as a unit. And, and, and then to look back and say, maybe we needed to be a little bit more individualized. It's probably a bit hard when you've got guys competing in training against each other. And even though it seems like Casper has more, uh, sorry, Christian has more maturity to, to not try and run the paces in some training sessions and sit back and, and the lactate threshold data tells him to. So he listens to that. Um, it is hard when you're continually training with other people. There are very many good positive reasons to do that. And there are also some drawbacks with that because you, you tend to race each other in training. But I'm sure you've got control of that with your, with your 
you know, your laboratory style approach to it, but that could be detrimental on, you know, for looking backwards on, on the race. The team thing that you were so strong with could have been, in fact, one of the, one of the downfalls or the negatives. Yes, uh, that's absolutely true. And that is some of the things that's been discussed because we know that our team model, that the best athletes working together, training together under the same philosophy, it, it will still be a winning success formula the next year. Uh, and, um, but then we need to balance that with a little bit more individualization within the athletes in the team. But it's not that we can send athletes on different training camp and different coaches. Mm. Uh, you, you need to be in, in the same environment, the same training group. Um, we have a little bit more coaches now, so we will change a little bit who will work with different athletes, but we will still be together. We will still living in Bergen with an open training camp. So, yeah, yeah so, so we know that's a key factor for success and uh, that we need to, to keep. And then, look, we need to remind the listeners that we're being very particular here because, yeah, because you had three athletes in the first 11 places and, you know, from a small country um, that, you know, it is an outstanding performance and we're being a little bit too critical, I think, <laughs> of uh, for someone to come first, fourth and 11th, um, you know, eighth and 11th, sorry, first. 8th and 11th, but, it, you know, the results are disappointing for them, but, you know, from from the outsider, they're outstanding results. And you obviously fixed something because um, Gustav, uh, not that anything really needed to be fixed, like your point, Dad, but Gustav just became world champion for the second time a couple of weeks ago, so <laughs> it was performed yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. but he, he said afterwards that he would probably be, was in a little bit better shape after Olympics and uh, during the Olympics, so that is also one of the things that uh, we have looked into. Yeah. What the tape? I was just going to mention the tapering. Um, I don't know. Sorry, George, you might have been saying the same thing, but but the tapering we we've said said many times to our own particular athletes that um, you need to find out what works best for you, and you can only do that by trial and error in in other events and. And um, the way you approach a B race or a C race, as we call it, compared to your A race um, and learning from how you performed in those B races when you might not have tapered so much. And, and then you come to the A race when you taper a lot because you want to be as fresh as possible to perform at your best. And for some people, that actually doesn't work. And, and you, that is a, a thing you need to identify very early on. What works specifically for you? Because you can't throw a blanket and say, every athlete should taper this way. No, uh, I totally agree on that. And that is some of the, um, the art of coaching to try to find that. Okay, you as a coach try to, to help the athletes to find it, but it's always the athletes that need to try it out and need to find out how they respond to the tapering process. And that is really individual. And um, we see it's different for all athletes. Uh, what I can say in general is that... Uh, when we have been tapering too much, going too much down in volume, they have a tendency to underperform. Mm. Uh, but, but that is very general. But still, we need to, the athletes need to learn. And working with age grouper, uh, it's also the same because they have a really different life and the time they can use in their training. And, and that will, of course, affect the tapering process. Uh, how much tapering, how long, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, that, that's uh, something you just need to learn yourself. But of course, with a good coach, 
you will all have the communication with the Atlas and try to find the best solution. But it is a little bit, uh, you need to try it out. My, my last question on the Olympics is that uh, when dad and I watched the race, we just said, Christian is drinking a lot of water. And, you know, he, he probably drank more water. I really just want you to uh, give us some insight into this. He drank more water on the run than anyone I've ever seen in a triathlon. And yeah. it, it seemed a bit excessive. He was at every station he was taking some. And I know yeah. that it was hot and he had to acclimatize and they want, athletes wanted to keep themselves cool. He vomited it all up over the finish line. You could see there was yeah. pictures of him chucking it. Uh, why was he drinking so much? Was that a plan or was he just felt dehydrated or that the plan was to take that much water? Uh, it was, uh, of course, a uh, part of a plan. Um, but Christian is, is probably one of the few athletes in the world who can gain weight during a competition. <laughs> so, uh, but but, um, but the, the serious answer to, to that question is um, we have done, done a lot of um, sweat, uh, sweat uh, testing so we know the, the sweat rate. I mean, you how much of, of the fluid that needs to replace, uh, replace so it should not affect the performance in a negative way. So all the athletes knew how much they needed to drink uh, and they knew how much the imbalance could be because there's no way you can drink so much you need to because uh, I can say it now, but let's say for Christian, the the sweat rate was 2.3 or 2.4 liter per hour. Uh, And and when you break up the race, uh, on the bike, you have a little bit limited how many mm-hmm. uh, balls mm-hmm. you can have bring with you. You, of course, you cannot drink on the swim. That means that you need to actually drink quite a lot on the run. And and then you knew how much you needed to do. And instead of drinking quite a lot a few times, it took a little bit all the times. And also used a little bit for uh, as a cool as mm-hmm. a cooling here. Yeah. It's great to hear. I should never have doubted you. I should have known it was <laughs> it was an exact yeah. plan. Um, we yeah. are conscious of time, so we only have a couple of questions left. Um, but you mentioned that you are coaching some age groupers as well. So what are you doing differently with your age groupers? Um, what are some primary principles you're doing differently compared to the pros that can train 35 hours a week? Um, uh, you need to pay much more attention to the daily life of the age groupers. So you, 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 you need to balance and mix the plan compared to how the life is. Uh, that is the, the bigger difference. I think the main principles in training are more or less the same. Uh, but if you have 10 hours of time for training compared to 30, um, the intensity in distribution will be a little bit different. Uh, of course, it depends on the distance you do, but uh, if you do less training, you, you can go a little bit more on, on the interval side, a little bit more intensity uh, and a little bit lower on the long easier things but but that's yeah it, it's very individually based but i have to say that the main coaching philosophy is the same is adapted to the overall volume and the overall life of the age groupers well Arud, uh we want to thank you very much for your time uh, before we let you go dad was there one other thing you wanted to ask anything um for- yeah i i did want to just one question when we were talking about a lot of the, the actual training sessions how flexible are you if the athlete is really if he's got a high intensity session coming up and yep. and it's really important uh, part of the program in 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 maybe a four week block and all of a sudden he's not feeling like he can hit the targets and 
and everything uh, medically says that he's okay, but he's just not feeling. What? what how? How flexible are you with the session? Oh, I would say that we are quite flexible. Um, very often we we take down the volume or skip session if we see that it's needed, um, because it's all about being ready to the the really key session, and uh, we see that the in the high performance group. They recover a little bit differently. Maybe they have some days where they're not able to sleep well enough or um, eat the, the, the thing they need to do. That, then we need to adapt it. But it's very often that we they try to start a session and if it's not feeling okay, then we change it. That's a great answer. Our final question that we um, ask our guest is, what's a life lesson you've learned in the last 12 months that you'd like to pass on to others? Wow. <laughs> oh, um, that is something I haven't thought of. Um, <laughs> Hit you on the spot. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, that was difficult to, to say a good uh, answer on that. But uh, if I say uh, compared to, to what we did, um, you need to, okay, to win an Olympic gold medal, you, you need to go all in for it and you need to be really passionate about it and you need to just trust the process and uh, go for it. Uh, that's a great answer. Thank you very much again for your time. We really appreciate it. We have hundreds more questions we could ask, but you've given us invaluable insight into one of the top triathlon programs in the world. So thank you very much, Rube. Thank you very much. You're Mike. welcome. You're welcome. It's nice meeting you and good luck with your coaching and uh, your career. So, okay, take care. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Fantastic.